Ralph, your Bible is in my office. There you go. You're now listening to Grace City Portland. So here we go. You guys ready for this? Okay. Um, I'm not. There we go. First Corinthians chapter 16. Guys, we're going to read through the entire last chunk of the letter, 12 verses. So here we go. First Corinthians chapter 16, verses 12 through 24. This is actually the NIV translation this morning. Now, about our brother Apollos, this is the sixth sort of reference that Paul makes to things concerning uh, subjects that the Corinthians themselves asked Paul about in a previous letter to him. So all throughout the book, he says stuff like, now concerning, now concerning, or now about. This is the last time he says it. Now concerning your brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go with, to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous and strong, do everything in love. Verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Next slide, please. Verse 19. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. And thus ends the letter to the church in Corinth. Where to zoom in? There's a whole lot. I mentioned last week how towards the end of the letter it becomes a bit of a hodgepodge collection of just some, some different meaningful but slightly just random, like, hey, shout out to this person, oh, and don't forget this, and by the way, so-and-so says hi, oh, and if anyone doesn't love Jesus, let them be cursed, and Apollos really doesn't want to have anything to do with you right now, so oh, peace out. See you when I, when I make it there. Um, so there's a lot that we could actually say if, if we wanted to kind of zoom in on, on maybe one or two things here. Uh, I'm particularly interested in his sort of like closing comment in verse 22. Um, it's, it's a little shocking, actually. I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. I've read a lot of commentaries on it. No one really has a, a whole a lot of insight on it. But he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Uh, the Greek word there is let that person be anathema, um, which, or it's like uh, someone devoted to destruction or cursed. And then he throws in this little closing phrase, come Lord, um, I think that the English translation doesn't really capture 
kind of what he's doing here, but it's a bit of play on words. He says, let the person who doesn't love Jesus be anathema. And then when he says, come Lord, that's the phrase there is actually an Aramaic phrase that's pronounced maranatha. So he says, let the person be anathema, maranatha. So it's almost like this little rhyming thing. Paul does this a lot in his letters. We could talk all morning about that. Um, We're not. We could talk about the holy kiss Um, Greet one another with the holy kiss. That's an imperative. It's a command. Got a little hand clap there. Calvin, you would clap. Um, This is a great example of of a cultural uh, situation, a cultural context in which the application of a command doesn't quite translate into our contemporary setting. Um, this happens quite a bit throughout the scripture, particularly in the New Testament. Um, and we're talking about the, the ancient Near East. We're talking about a first century Jewish Greek culture. So there's certain commands that were given that it's like, uh, really? Really greet each other with a holy kiss? And this is not the only time Paul says this. He, he commands the Romans to greet each other with a holy kiss. Um, He says the same thing in his his first letter to the Thessalonians. He says it again in his second letter to the Corinthians. Peter, in his first epistle, also commands uh, the brethren to greet each other with the kiss of love, is the way he puts it. Um, But there's a cultural context to this. Um, Speaking of culture, this, this passage always reminds me, some of you, I think, have maybe heard me tell this story of uh, my, my wife and I and, and some of the many cultural um, adventures that we've been on. So she's South African. Uh, she's white. She's English. But she's totally African. Um, and we met in the UK and we've been married for a while now. We've enjoyed sort of laughing at each other and, and ourselves when it comes to some of the cultural nuances that one encounters when you get married. Uh, we had just been married and she was going to introduce me to one of her uh, like best friends from university. She went to, um, what is it called? Where is, is Shirley? There you are. Can I share this story? Of course, okay. <laughs> uh, I was totally gonna do it anyway. So she went to, what was the name of your university? Rhodes University in uh, Grahamstown, South Africa. And apparently one of her, her, her buddies from university was a guy named uh, Mark, Mark Robb. And I heard all about Mark Robb in the early days of our marriage, who is this Mark? Mark, 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 Mark and Taryn. I was assured that there was never anything, there was never anything between you and Mark, right? Okay. <laughs> we'll talk later. So her, her buddy from university, finally I'm gonna get to meet Mark and, uh, Mark and Taryn Rob. We go over to their house, Mark opens the door, and before I can even process what's going on, he leans in and kisses my wife on the mouth. Like a little, not like open mouth, like a little, little peck, but on the mouth nonetheless. And I was like, whoa, what, what just happened? What just happened? And so I, you know, I tried to shake it off, no big deal. Like, and uh, the night goes on. I'm, I'm very quiet, slightly withdrawn. I hope, I hope you guys didn't notice. Anyways, we leave, and later on, I'm like, so what's... So what's the deal with you and, and Mark? Like, he kissed you on the mouth. Like, and she explained to me, you know, that's like a cultural thing. 
you know, where I grew up. Like, it's just Mark and Sharon, they're from Zimbabwe. Like, it's just kind of this African thing. And it's not just an African thing. It's, this is it's a, a normal thing, but not so normal for me. So anyways, the next time we went over to Mark and Taryn Rob's house, I thought, solution, I'll just kiss Mark's wife on the mouth. Even Stephen, right? So, this is like a few weeks later, go over to their house, Mark opens the door, and I'm like, hey Mark, what's going on? They kiss, I see Taryn, hey Taryn, I go for it, just lean right in, a little kiss right on the mouth, Super awkward, super awkward. Did not balance things out, just increased the awkwardness level exponentially. Night goes on, and eventually I'm like, guys, this, this was at our little dinner session that night. I said, guys, I, I gotta just confess, the whole kissing on the mouth thing, not down with it. Just really not, no. I, I get that there's this little cultural thing going on, and I'm just the, the American in the room, but can we just stop kissing each other's wives on the mouth? (laughs) And we all laughed, and it was great. Um, So we're not going to do that. We are not going to greet each other with a holy kiss, maybe a holy hug. Heck, we can even make it a side hug. But we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) I just wanted to share that story. We could talk about... We could talk about giving proper recognition to those who labor as fellow workers spreading the gospel, the point Paul makes in verse 18. And we could talk about being on your guard, verse 13, standing firm, being courageous and strong, which is to say, doing everything in love. We could talk about, we could talk a lot about Apollos. In verse 12, he says, look, I talked to Apollos, I told him that you guys were rather keen for him to come visit again, and he's just not into it. He said, I will come when I can, which is interesting because the book of 1 Corinthians opens by Paul addressing a real issue of divisiveness in the church that seems to be relatively rooted in this sort of picking sides between Paul and Apollos. Paul was another apostle who apparently, according to Acts 18, was rather instrumental in helping the church in Corinth get off the ground. I love that Paul, at no point in time, in the beginning nor in the end of his letter, in any way marginalizes the, the, the leadership or the value of Apollos. He doesn't play that game. He doesn't defend himself, nor does he try to somehow... Um, talk down to Apollos. It's actually a great example of how Christian leaders, pastors of of other churches in the same city, for example, should be interacting with one another. There is no place whatsoever for competition in the church of Jesus. It just shouldn't exist. We are all sons and daughters of the same God. Or we could talk about the household of Stephanus and their devotion to the service of God's people, verse 15. And that is, in fact, what I want to focus on this morning. This household, the first converts in Achaia, Achaia, who were apparently members of the household of Stephanus, and how they devoted themselves to the service 
of the Lord's people. And he goes on to say that, that we should recognize leaders, people such as this, and be subject to them. For they're, they're working for the cause. And we need to recognize that and support them because they are devoted to the service of God's people. Because I want to talk about devotion. Because everything else that we've covered in the last 29 plus weeks, it's all great, it's all helpful principally. There's some powerful things to think about, to meditate on, and and even to aspire towards. But what will it take to actually live out? And not just for like a year or two, but for the rest of our lives or until Jesus comes back. I want to talk about devotion. Devotion. I'll, I'll define it. I'll try. Devotion is the extent of your contribution, the degree to which you add significant blessings to others, to the family of God and to the world around you. The extent of your contribution will always be proportional to your willingness to devote yourself to God, his ways, and to the people that he has placed around you in your life. I think we all desire to to live our lives in a way that, that we actually add value to others. I believe that anyone who would consider themselves to be a follower of Jesus desires to be a contributing member of God's family. I mean, no one wants to be like the leech guy or girl who just never, ever gives anything but always just shows up to see what they can get out of the situation. We, we want to be contributors. And I would argue that the degree to which we are devoted to God, to his ways, to those around us will be equivalent to the degree to which we are, in fact, the contributors that we desire to be. Does that make sense? Devotion. Devotion. I would say devotion is one of the chief characteristics of spiritual maturity. You'll note that Stephanus' family were the first Christians in Achaia, as I mentioned. They were the OG. They were the ones whom Paul wrote, be subject to one of these. They were the first converts. That's important to catch. That means they've been around for a while. That means they've been following and and serving Jesus and contributing to the family of God for a while. And therefore, they're hopefully, they're the ones who are exhibiting maturity. They are the ones devoted to the family of God. Number two, a devoted life is the mark of a leader's life. Number three, the depth of your devotion will determine the degree of relational intimacy you have with others. Your relationships will always only ever be utterly superficial as long as you fail to devote yourself in the long term to the people around you. And lastly, lack of devotion is arguably one of the greatest killers of relationship and community that you'll ever see. Lack of devotion. Guys, I want to highlight the great enemies of devotion. I want to highlight three challenges to living a devoted life. And I want to talk about three keys to actually learning how to do it right. 
Number one, the great enemies of devotion. Actually, we'll just put all three up there. Acedia, hyperdevotion, and resentment. These are the three great enemies of the devoted life. Number one, that's sort of a cool Greek word, acedia. Um, the Greek word acedia, it's difficult to translate, but if you do a bit of a word study on it, the closest English word we have to that is something along the lines of boredom, restlessness, um, maybe a kind of apathy, um, or simply becoming tired of waiting. It's what the ancients called the noonday demon. Thousand years ago, 1,500 years ago, the desert fathers, the ancient monastics who would spend prolonged periods of time in isolation, meditation, they experienced this phenomenon that would take, take place sort of halfway through the day. They become distracted, they become wearisome, they would get bored with the rhythm of life. And this sort of noonday demon would come to tempt them to give up. To, uh, to do other things because of boredom. It's the temptation to quit mid-course. Just around the time we've followed our routine long enough to become wary of the sameness and tediousness of the task. Um, American author Kathleen Norris, this is so good, he wrote in her book, Acedia and Me. She describes Acedia as a state of restlessness, of not living in the present and seeing the future as overwhelming. It can invade any vocation where the labor is long and the rewards slow to appear, such as scientific research, long-term marriages, prayer, building community, etc. It manifests as a growing lack of caring or being unfeeling about things, whether that be your appearance, your hygiene, relationships, your community's welfare, the world's welfare. All of this, Norris writes, is connected to the hopelessness and vague unease that arises from having too many choices, from lacking true devotion. And she relates this to forgetfulness about the one Thing needful, that is the remembrance of God. Acedia. Have you experienced this? They talk about the 10 year itch in marriages, they talk about the two year boredom in church life. I made that up just now. <laughs> this, this phenomenon that takes place when you committed to, to someone or something, a lifestyle, a way of honoring Jesus, a way of being devoted to his people. Initially, it's really exciting. Everything's gold. It's fun, it's new, it's funny, it's powerful. You, you're experiencing the adrenaline of the, the freshness of whatever it is. And then inevitably, as you, you get your rhythm going, as you find your routine, that, that initial sensation begins to wane and you feel acedia. You feel restless, perhaps a bit bored. And so what do you do? You go find a new thing because that's way funner. And you short circuit what God has started and thus we all experience 
um, a dire level of superficiality in our lives, in our careers, in our relationships, and yes, absolutely, uh, our church communities. Our church communities. I would say that one of the most superficial places to be on planet Earth is the American church. And look, I'm not a self-loathing American. I'm really not. Um, there's a little bit of time that I, I've gotten to travel around the world and, and live in some different places. I, I love our nation. I love our culture. I'm proud uh, to be an American. Um, but I'm also painfully aware of, of how utterly superficial we can be as a culture, and especially in the church. And it's no mystery as to why. I mean, just look at us. Like, for how long can this actually be entertaining? You know, I mean, I try. I think it's good to, to have some laughs, and, and I don't want you guys to be bored in church, and I want to be able to communicate something that is helpful. I, I take preaching very, very seriously, actually. But eventually, guys, you'll, you'll, you'll start hearing my, my stories. Oh, you're like, Simon, you told that one six months ago. Think of a new story. Your sense of humor is actually starting to get a little annoying. You know. You be quiet. You've not been here long enough. I shouldn't be annoying yet. Number two, the hyper-devotion, which isn't really devotion at all. Um, and I'm gonna, I've got a few scriptures that I'm going to jump to in just a moment here. Hyper-devotion is when we attempt to be devoted to everything. Devotion to everything is obviously devotion to nothing. It's this idea of being, oh, I'm devoted to humanity. I'm devoted to the world. I'm devoted to like anything living and breathing. I'm devoted to the capital C church. Okay, well, exactly what does that mean? Practically, what, what does that look like? If you're devoted to everything, you're not, you're not devoted to anything. That's called hyper-devotion. It's a faux-devotion. It's really just a delusional excuse to remain devoted to nothing. Um, or perhaps you, you sincerely do attempt to devote yourself to everything, um, i.e. too many things, which will result in chronic failure or burnout. And an eventual fear of devoting yourself to anything again, or at least to the right things. Sometimes um, our hyper-devotion isn't merely an excuse to remain undevoted to anything. It can, it can actually be a sincere desire to be devoted to everything, which is impossible unless you're God. And the inevitable result of that will just be like a, a burnout. Or you'll just start dropping balls. You know, juggling everything, trying to keep everything up in the air, and eventually be like, well, this, this is miserable. I don't want to be that guy or that girl, so I just, I'll just stop devoting altogether. We presently live in a society where we are daily bombarded with thousands of idols competing for our devotion. Let me read to you a few verses. These are actually on the screen here. Acts chapter two, verse 42. Um, I love the simplicity of the early church. I, I don't think I'm so naive as to suggest that this is like where we need to get back to, as if we're just gonna like all transport back to the first century 
ancient Near East and like do this. That's, that just, that's absurd. But principally, principally, I think there's something so powerful about the simplicity of devotion that we see in the early church. Acts 2.42 says that they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four things. Four things. The apostles' teaching, which for us would be the word of God, the Bible, to the fellowship, that is the, the, the coming together, the relationship, the actually being present with one another. This, this was a, a big part of our fellowship. Certainly not the only part of our fellowship. If, if we only ever do a Sunday meeting, that, that's a very, very shallow kind of fellowship. Um, we need to gather outside of this place, although this is a huge part of our fellowship. To the breaking of bread, which is obviously reference to like sharing a meal together, um, but it's also quite an explicit reference to the sacraments, the sacramental breaking of bread, communion, as we, we put it. They were devoted to remembering what Jesus had done on the cross for them, and Jesus commanded his church to take communion together in remembrance of him and what he's done. It's a command. It's not an option. And prayer. They were devoted to prayer. Think of like the hundreds of things that aren't mentioned in this verse here. I mean, there's, there's so many things. That even as a church, like spiritually or religiously speaking, there's like so many things we could devote ourselves to. They started out with these four. I mean, of course, we could, we could look further into the New Testament. Acts 18.5, um, it says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Of course, this is really just in line with, with Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul, writing to young Timothy, says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Again, it's, just, it's really kind of redundant. Um, and 1 Titus 3.14 our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. That's about it. That's the exhaustive list, exhaustive list of things to devote ourselves to as the church of God. Of course, if we go to Old Testament, that's an interesting study because most, mostly what you find being devoted in the Old Testament were like things devoted to destruction. Everything was devoted to destruction. It was a bad time, um, a very important time and an important reminder to us that we are the rescued people of God. And if it weren't for Jesus being destroyed for us on the cross, we too would have been remained devoted to destruction because by nature we were born as children of wrath under the judgment of God. And that's a scary thought. Which is why it's so important to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But the point is, hyper-devotion is not the solution. Devoting to everything is devoting to nothing. As followers of Jesus, we need to be very clear 
about the few and essential things that we are to devote, to devote ourselves to. We're going to come back to that. But number three. Next slide. Resentment. Acedia, hyperdevotion, and resentment. The great enemy of the, 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 the devoted life. Romans 12, verse 10. Paul writes and he says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. He goes on to say, Attempt to outdo one another in showing honor. If you are devoted to someone long enough and love them well, you will eventually be tempted to resent them for not reciprocating according to your standard of self-sacrificial love. If you are truly devoted to one another in love, devoted to loving one another like Jesus loves us, it is only a matter of time before you get to a place where you are tempted to feel resentment for not receiving back everything that you put in to that relationship or that community. Guys, I've seen it happen over and over again. Of course, I've, even in my own life. You determine to love someone with all you've got. You determine to give everything you have to this relationship or this community that you, you find yourself a part of. Could be your marriage, could be a friendship, could be our church right here. And you say, right, I'm going to give everything I've got to this place. And you give and you give and you give and you attempt to outdo one another in showing honor. You attempt to love people like Jesus loved people. And eventually you stand back and you realize, why? Well, I'm, I'm kind of getting a raw deal here. Like I'm giving everything I've got and you people, you're just not quite giving much back. And what does that equal? Resentment. Resentment. And you go to a dark place and begin to think these people, just, they're just out to use me. These people don't, don't actually love me. I'm not giving them. This is probably one of the deadliest perils that you'll find at work in marriage. When you get this mindset that somehow love is this like fair deal, right? Like I'll give a little, you give a little, and hopefully like we'll both just come out with a little something. It's this tit for tat. It's this sort of approach to loving someone that's actually utterly foreign to the way God loves us. It's all of you if you love me. I'll invest in this if I can be guaranteed at some level I'm gonna get something back. Only the sacrificial love of Christ, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. In a marriage, if you wanna truly love someone like Jesus, you give, and you give, and you give, and you give. Not to get something back, not with a thousand strings attached, but you give because that's love. It is not fair. It hurts. And it will often even sometimes feel like you're dying to self. 
the most vivid demonstration of that kind of love you're gonna find in scripture is on the cross, on the cross. Let me ask you a question. If you've ever read the, the account of Jesus' death on the cross, did he seem resentful as he hung on that Roman cross? Who was he dying for? Enemies of God? Us. As well as those who were actually crucifying right there, right there on the spot, the Roman centurions. With his dying breath, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That was not a man with a heart full of resentment. That was the Son of God with a heart overflowing with the love of his Father. Oh, God, this, this is a painful, painful one to learn. But we must. Otherwise, our devotional life will always end in resentment because you'll give and you'll give and you'll give and eventually you'll come to the end of yourself and you'll say, right, what am I gonna get out of this? What are you gonna get? The question is, what do you got? Let's talk about the keys to learning devotion. Okay, so these are a few of what I would say are the biggest challenges actually living out a life that is marked by devotion. Three keys for learning to live a devoted life. Number one, remember who God is. Jesus is Lord. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You will either be devoted to the one and despise the other or vice versa. To live a devoted life, we need to begin with the revelation that Jesus is our king. He is our master. He is sovereign Lord. The starting point is the fear of God. I'm devoted to my king because I'm obligated to do so, because he's God. Oftentimes, we, we wanna sort of skip that step and get right to like, Jesus is my best friend, which he is. Uh, Jesus is my, my companion, which he is. God is my father who displays his fear in my heart because he loves me, because I'm accepted, because I'm secure in what he's done for me, which is all true. But it begins with the revelation that Jesus is Lord. I can't be devoted to him if he's merely my buddy. I can't be devoted to him if he's anything less than sovereign God. And so we begin a devoted life by learning the fear of God. Number two, we learn the devoted life by learning to embrace our limitations, to live within our devotional capacity. Because this goes back to, um, to the hyper-devotion. Um, what are we meant to be devoted to? 
You know, there's a, I think there's a scale, a devotional scale in terms of what one should be actually devoted to versus, well, we'll see what happens. Sometimes we get, we get our scales completely turned around and we devote ourselves to like, I don't know, what do, we, what do, we, what do you devote yourself to? Confessional time. Netflix, <laughs> radically devoted. I'm, I'm only just starting season two of Stranger Things now. I know. But it was like, it's like delayed gratification. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Thank you. Pokemon? You like, are you a Stranger Things fan? Okay. Uh, Pokemon? Radically devoted. Sorry, not, I'm, I'm just that general direction, not you specifically. Your sport, your team, your sleep, your food. Uh, these are all good things, great things. I'm into, I'm into all of those things. Am I devoted to those things? Should I be devoted to those things? No. Because I have, a, I have a limited devotional capacity. If I'm devoted to one thing, I will not be devoted to another. If I try to be devoted to everything, I will be devoted to nothing. I will be a flake. I will be a terrible friend. An excuse of a father. And my marriage will suffer. I am first and foremost devoted to my king, my God. Jesus, my Lord. Everything else comes under that. I'm devoted to my wife. I'm devoted to my children. I'm devoted to my church. I'm devoted to you guys. Even though I don't know some of you guys. I'm devoted to our community here. As a church, what are we meant to be devoted to? I'll tell you what we're not devoted to. We're not devoted to a model of ministry. I know some people like to debate you know, over what should church look like. We talk about ecclesiology and, and different modes of church governance and you know, all of these different things. Important things, to be sure, but not necessarily things that are meant to be devoted to. We're not devoted to a model of ministry, but we are devoted to family. Because church isn't just a model, a structure. It's people the family of God. We're not devoted to this building. I remember when, when we signed the lease for this building. We started this amazing relationship with Door of Hope. Um, I got to know their pastor there, and he's become just an amazing friend of mine. So, so grateful for that church and for this building and the tool that it is. But the day we moved in here, I remember so clearly making this like commitment in my heart our church is not going to be about this beautiful building. We're not going to be about those mugs. We're not going to be about these chairs. We're going to be about this family. We're going to be about people. We're going to be about meeting together. The beauty of a building, a place to gather, isn't that it's just it's a building. It's that, it's, it's that we can gather. We can actually get together. It's not about Sunday. It's not about 10 a.m. It's not about 9th and Fremont. It's about the people of God not forsaking gathering together. It's about setting aside a time every week to say, family, let's get together. Let's look each other in the eyes. Let's bless each other. Let's challenge each other. Let's pray for each other. Let's encourage one another. Let's cry with each other. Let's celebrate together. But let's just keep getting together. 
whether it's in this building, whether it's in the, the community center down the road, we're devoted to remaining together. We're not devoted to a philosophy of ministry. We're devoted to God. It's so important to remember that. What we're talking about, what we're always talking about, isn't an idea. It's about a person, a being, our creator, our father, our God. And finally, uh, we are devoted to prayer. I always forget to remind uh, us as a church, we pray every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. right here in this building. I never forget, we've been doing it for a while now, I'm close to a year. Um, I, I'll never forget the one morning I showed up and no one else came. I'm like, this is, this is lame, super lame. But I was here, and I'm like, I'm not gonna go home. So I paced around this building for an hour, just, just spilling my guts, sort of using some of that emotion to just fuel some really heartfelt prayer. And I tell you, I don't, I, there's moments when you can feel the presence of God in, in some very incredible ways. That was one of those moments. And I remember by seven o'clock, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray here every Tuesday morning for the rest of my life because I'm devoted to prayer. And guys, that's my, my hope for us as a church. I realize there's always logistical things to, to kind of navigate through and, and 6 a.m. on a Tuesday morning doesn't work for everyone. But I hope that if it doesn't work, it's merely because you're, it's just, just practically impossible for you. But we do aspire as a church community to be devoted to prayer. Last, number three. This is so important. Your devotion is a reflection of God's own devotion to you. You can't live a devoted life. Not to God, not to his people until you first realize how utterly devoted Jesus is to you. Oh, if we miss that, guys, we, we've slipped into something, um, call it legalism, call it dead works, call it religion, call it just trying to be better people. And if that's what you're into, more power to you, but guys, that's not what we're talking about here. Our desire, I hope that your desire to live a devoted life, in fact, flows out of an increasing, deepening revelation that our devotion to God, to his people, it's only a reciprocation of his devotion to us. We love because he first loved us. We give because he first gave to us. We sacrifice for one another because he first sacrificed everything for us. We devote ourselves to him, to his family, to each other because he first devoted himself 
to us. That's the starting point. That's the ending point. That's everything in between. That's our fuel for living a devoted life. Can we stand together, please? I'm going to invite our worship trio to come up. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a moment to take communion. We're going to take the bread and the wine or the juice and um, do what Jesus commanded us to do and remember who he is and what he's done for us, to remember how radically devoted our God is to us so that we can live our lives in, in reciprocation to his. Father, thank you. Thank you for your devotion. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the opportunity to to show our love for you by devoting ourselves to one another. Father, I pray that you would help us to be like uh, those of the household of Stephanus. That as we mature in knowledge and in power, we would grow in our devotion to you and practically to one another. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts wide to, to understanding your incredible love for us, for understanding what you did, what you went through, so that we might experience your love. Not just think about it, but to know it, to know you, to know your love. Come, Lord Jesus.